Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brendan O'Boyle, in this week for Brian Winter. Nayib Bukele, the young and increasingly authoritarian president of El Salvador, is already one of Latin America's most powerful leaders. Could he accumulate even more clout in upcoming legislative elections? He's changing civic values, and the traditional parties are the enemy. So next week will be a zero-sum game, according to him, and the winner takes it all. In a region where presidents are lucky if they break 50% in approval polls, and where some regularly poll under 20%, arguably the most popular leader in Latin America is El Salvador's Nayib Bukele. Polls often show that some 90% or more of Salvadorans support the 39-year-old president. Bukele was elected decisively in 2019 as a young, self-styled outsider who promised to do away with crime and corruption. Since then, crime has improved. According to the government, homicides plunged over 50% in Bukele's first year in office. But Bukele's critics say that his disrespect for institutions are threatening the very foundations of El Salvador's young democracy. In its 2020 Democracy Index, the Economist Intelligence Unit downgraded El Salvador from a flawed democracy to what it calls a hybrid regime. Human Rights Watch has said that since taking office, Bukele has undermined, quote, basic democratic checks and balances, end quote. And as legislative elections approach on February 28th, there are fears among Bukele's critics that the president will only further consolidate power. So what's behind these fears, and what can we expect from an empowered Bukele after the elections? How might Bukele's government work with a new administration in Washington? To help me answer these questions and more, I'm joined from San Salvador by Claudia Umania. Claudia is a lawyer, an activist, and a researcher, and she's the vice president of FUSADES, a Salvadoran think tank for economic and social development. Claudia, thank you so much for coming on the America's Quarterly Podcast. Thank you for having me in such a crucial moment for my country. Claudia, these are the first elections since Bukele took office. While they are legislative elections, Bukele's image certainly looms over them. How much of a referendum on Bukele are these elections? Basically, the president has used this election as a referendum. It is believed that he could get a very important majority and create a new political map. And the elections are crucial because the elected Congress people will appoint five Supreme Court justices. And by the end of the year, the next attorney general, and he will be the one that has to get the fight against corruption and crime into place. So the elections are excessively aggressive. And and currently, we're living a very tense moment. Bukele's image has certainly changed since taking office. I remember, at least outside of El Salvador, he had this image of a fresh face, of a millennial who connected with the people via social media. And that image changed pretty quickly. A year ago this month, we saw those images of Bukele marching soldiers into the legislative assembly to try to pressure lawmakers into approving a loan request to fund his security plan. Talk to us a little bit about how his image has changed in the last year and why we're seeing labels like authoritarian and autocratic. In his narrative, he represented the future and anybody that's critical to him is part of the corrupt past, the the past that was abusive of power. And during the whole year, 
he has used lots of publicity to create this persona, this powerful personality cult. And his use of social media and his great communication strategy uh, really connected with people. In this moment, we're about to be 30 years after the signing of the peace accords. And the new generation, they have not been feeling before the time of the war. And so he has been trying also to, to erase the historic part of the signing of the peace accords and creating a new narrative. And in that narrative, he becomes the hero. He's changing civic values and the traditional parties are the enemy. So next week will be a zero sum game, according to him, and the winner takes it all. And the inflection moment was the February 9th of last year, as you were saying, with the militarization of our Congress. And basically what he wanted to do is intimidate legislators to vote for a security plan loan. Our Congress was overtaken by our president. One of the other authoritarian aspects is the way that he has been retaliating against journalists and press advocates. Freedom of expression has been under siege. And we really appreciate the bipartisan letters sent to our country because of the hostility on the independent media. So as we look ahead to the elections on February 28th, Bukele's party is expected to do really well. Do you think this message that El Salvador's democracy is under threat is connecting with voters? Is it fair to say that maybe issues of democratic backsliding are less pressing in a country where violence and poverty and food insecurity are at the top of many voters' minds? There are serious problems like gang-related violence, corruption, inequality, lack of education and, and migration that has separated families. And this has created anger. And President Bukele has stepped into that anger. And the inflammatory rhetoric has allowed him to have very impressive approval rates. And he's very likely to win a majority of seats in this legislature. It's very, very preoccupying that if Bukele concentrates power in a way that erodes the democratic institutions, then the president could become an autocratic president. And one of the aspects that I'm very troubled is of why he is warning of a possible electoral fraud. The president has also even been attacking the electoral authority because his relation with the military forces has been more of an allegiance to the president more than to the constitution. I think that the next days can be very, very tense. Claudia, since taking office, Bukele has actually not had a majority in Congress. Who are his allies in government now, and how might that change after the elections? President Bukele's source of power is his connection to the people. That's what led him to become the president. But I would say that his strong connection with the military forces and also in the previous government, one could perceive the importance that President Bukele gave to the relationship with the United States, with the last administration. 
So that is a very interesting aspect. But if he does win the majority, then he would be consolidating another form of, of power. He would be able to obtain the election of all these second level officials, like what I, what I was saying, the Supreme Court magistrates and the attorney general, but also be able to obtain more loans. And that is also becoming very difficult for El Salvador because its economical state is deteriorating the capacity to obtain loans at a good rate. So are there voters who say, hey, I might not agree with Bukele's rhetoric or his attacks on journalists, but maybe if we had a legislative assembly that that had a majority and could get some things done, like approve loans, that would be better. It's very interesting because the thought that the president has not obtained loans, it's like an urban legend, but it's quite the contrary. He was able to obtain $4 billion in loans just for the pandemic. So he has been able to get loans passed through Congress. And that is very interesting because he has been saying to the Salvadorian people that he wished he could be doing more, but that has not been possible because Congress won't give him the tools. And this has also been part of what might win him so many seats because he has led people to believe that the deadlock has been stalling good public policies. But the truth is the public debt is equal to 92% of the GDP. And that is a record level for El Salvador. I wanted to ask about Bukele's ideology. He was expelled from the FMLN, which is the left-leaning party in 2017, but he ran for president for the center-right Ghana party. I know that labels of left and right are increasingly less relevant in Latin America than labels of democratic and anti-democratic. Could you talk to me a little bit about what Bukele's ideology is? Well, President Bukele actually said that he was dissolving ideology, that he would transcend it. And in that part, he has been right. He has no ideology. In fact, it's pretty difficult to follow his plan for the country. It feels more like what he has clear is just being able to win elections. That feels like that's his plan more than what will be the particular aspects that he will tackle. But having said that, he has very little respect for civil service. And in that sense, it's very preoccupying because he does have a couple of good ministers, but the majority of ministers are people with no professional background to be holding those kinds of positions. And that is very difficult because even if he did have a plan that it isn't that clear, he doesn't know how to implement it. He has sold the country that he has these mega projects like having a train in a certain part of the country. But in that day to day, he has been very disrespectful of public servants that had some trajectory. One of his first orders was just firing the technical body that was supporting the past presidents. And he has been more about having contracts with people with loyalties 
than people with merits. I want to talk a little bit about the state of the opposition. Bukele's election brought a kind of realignment to El Salvador's political system. He was the first candidate in over three decades to be elected from outside one of El Salvador's two major political parties, the FMLN and the ARENA. How united is the opposition? And how much of Bukele's strength comes from the opposition's weaknesses? I think you touch upon a very important aspect. The opposition has been debilitated. And Bukele has built part of the narrative upon that debilitation of the opposition. And let me tell you, this government had two very important political parties. ARENA, that was in government for 20 years, and FMLN, that was in power for 10 years. And they were the yin-yang. And through that confrontation, people felt that it was very difficult to get agreements. And currently, somehow, the opposition has been able at least to adopt some sorts of agreements to try to protect certain aspects. And let me take into account some of the legislation around the pandemic, where there was multi-party consent on how Bukele was exceeding his executive powers. So that was the start of some sorts of agreements that had been functional, and we wish we would have had those before Bukele. But nevertheless, they are there right now, and the opposition still has the next months up to May to put forth legislation that can help in democratic institutions. Some could even help the fight against corruption. Claudia, I'd like to talk about this very real drop in violence in El Salvador. According to the government, homicides fell over 50% in Bukele's first year in office. But we also know that homicides were already falling. Between 2015 and 2020, the homicide rate fell about 80%. How much of this is driving Bukele's popularity? The notorious reduction of homicides is one of Bukele's success stories. He considers that this reduction is due to his territorial control plan, especially by the work carried out by our military, our armed forces, and our police. And this really contrasts with reports from international organizations that have considered that the reductions may have come out of illegal agreements with gangs. But let me tell you something. In Fusades, we've been doing this business dynamics survey for many years on the perception of business climate. And before Bukele, many entrepreneurs would say that one of the aspects that was affecting the business climate since the last decade was insecurity. But after he came into office, this became one of the least important factors. So I do believe that in general, the people of El Salvador have received the reduction in violence, like one of those success stories that has given Bukele part of his triumph. Last year, reporting from the news website El Faro, 
pointed to negotiations between gangs and Bukele's government. Of course, there are medium and long-term consequences to reducing violence by negotiating with criminal actors. But for everyday voters, is this deal with the devil maybe worth it? Well, civil society in El Salvador and the press have been very, very outspoken about this theme because negotiating or the possible negotiations with gangs was something that came before the Bukele government. And eventually what happened was the deal wasn't able to hold and then more violence came out of it. So at least in the academic world, we believe that a security plan must involve an agenda that has prevention, then the control part, and also the rehabilitation of the people that have been involved in violence. And if you do this shortcut, in the long run, this will eat up the institutions. It will create more corruption and more violence because if there is in one part of the bargaining part something that you are giving not through a transparent method, then that can become in itself a source of other crimes. So this is all currently under investigation. And unfortunately, I don't think that any of this will be clarified before the elections. Claudia, a few weeks ago, Bukele actually made an unannounced trip to Washington, D.C. There were reports that Bukele actually asked for a last-minute meeting with officials from the Biden administration, and that meeting was turned down. Of course, Bukele went on to deny that that ever happened, but it was a it was a glimpse of how the relationship with Washington might play out. Where do you see this relationship going, and do you see any areas of potential collaboration with the new Biden administration? The relationship with the United States is currently being redefined. The new administration in the United States inherits a relationship that was based in the success of only two indicators. That's what I believe. It was stopping migration and fighting narco-traffic. But the Biden administration has a more comprehensive approach, a multi-pronged approach, and it promises to be a more profound working relation because it wants to address the root causes of immigration. And to do that, I believe that the areas that have been identified to work with government, but also with private sectors and civil society, have themes that are very important to the region and particularly to El Salvador which is combating corruption, strengthening democratic governance, and advancing rule of law. So even the migration part that is right now being discussed in the U.S. Congress is a theme that it's of great interest to El Salvador. We have been historical allies. So regardless of this new relationship that has to be built between the Biden and Bukele governments, I believe that there are a lot of areas of collaboration. And what we're really looking forward, the civil society point of view, is that we can see a more principle-oriented kind of foreign policy 
So even with all the concerns about Bukele's respect for democracy, his tactics, you actually sound pretty optimistic that he'll be able to build something of a collaborative relationship with Washington. I believe El Salvador is at a crossroads and my comments have been in the optimistic side. But you could also argue that because of the elections, his authoritarian conduct could be taken into a new level. And in that case, the relationship with the United States will become even more tense. But I think that the issue of migration and narcotraffic and also, if the country gets into the perfect storm of confrontation, eventually social and political instability could create a new wave of migration. And in that sense, I believe that the Biden administration will find a way to work in certain aspects, maybe not in the whole agenda, but at least in some aspects. What I believe is more troubling is just being part of the civil society of El Salvador. It feels more comforting to know that people in the United States are worried about freedom of expression, freedom of press, and also for the defense of human rights, because those civil liberties could be put at risk. We certainly share your concerns, Claudia, and we wish El Salvador the best in the coming weeks and months. Thank you so much for joining the America's Quarterly Podcast this week. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. You can read more at americasquarterly.org. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by me, Brendan O'Boyle, and by Leonie Rawls. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas. 